Okay, time is 24 past. So we have been gracious with four minutes. So now we, it's time for us to begin the question and answers. Uh, from experience, I want to tell you, not experience from other places, in several conferences. This is seventh conference. We've had question and answers. We want order, and we want people who ask relevant questions. If you are here to debate, to ask unnecessary questions, I'll take a microphone from you, and that's it. So, questions which you think will edify the church, will edify, will clarify things from scripture um, point of view, and asking a brother in Christ who has seen many things, who has been with lots of people, he can clarify some of the things. So you are free to ask questions and make up in your mind what, is this question necessary or just a way of debating? So because we don't waste other people's time just wanting to debate for debating. So please just think of a, a question which is uh, which will edify you not just a question just for asking uh, now who wants to ask question I'm just testing I'm just testing <laughs> yeah okay uh, good evening, sir. Uh, my name is Johanna Lalli. I'm from uh, Jyväskylä's uh, Reformed Baptist Church. It's a little town in the middle of Finland. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, oh, first, I want to say I'm very deeply grateful for your teachings in these days. Uh, glory to God. So, first question is uh, about judgment of God. So, it's about uh, what? Judgment of God, oh, okay. or uh, wrath of God. Uh -huh. uh, yesterday morning, uh, you teach us about the book of Daniel and uh, Romans 1. And you say that um, judgment of God uh, is shown to us like God has left some people in their thoughts, uh, mm -hmm. examples of this gender ideology. ideology. Uh, so my question is, um, why, uh, why God uses this kind of judgment? Uh, and my second question is, can you give us some uh, words of, word of encouragement, uh, especially to elders and deacons? Thank you. Okay. Uh, so the second question, a word of encouragement related to what? Espe especially to elders, church elders and deacons. Oh, elders and deacons. Okay, sure, great. Okay. Yeah, so the judgment of God, uh, the, the wrath of God, we often think in terms of earthquakes, fires, famines, pestilences, the dramatic stuff, you know, fire and brimstone from heaven like on Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, oftentimes the, the most fearsome act of God's judgment is his wrath of abandonment when God just gives people over to a depraved mind. And um, that is what we're seeing now in the world today. Now, specifically, your question was, why does God do that? Is that right? Yeah. 
Why does God do it? Well, uh, because of rejection of him, because of rejection of his authority uh, for man wanting to glorify himself rather than glorifying God, uh, for, uh, I'll use the United States as an example. In the United States, last I saw, that, um, according to polls, some 74% of Americans claim to be Christian. Well, th that, that's not even close to being true. I'd say probably less than 1%, maybe less than one half of 1% of Americans are truly Christian. Uh, so people who claim to know God and yet they reject his word, they reject his authority, they reject his lordship. Um, and so we know from scripture that um, there are a few things that God has more disdain for than hypocrisy. We see that in the ministry of Jesus a lot. Uh, Jesus called out the hypocrites, the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, hypocrites, woe to you, blind guides. Um, so I think that's why we're seeing the, the wrath of God being poured out. And it is his wrath of abandonment. It's, um, I mean, in a general sense, anytime you have like a pandemic, COVID, or an earthquake, you know, in a general sense, that's all results of living in a fallen world, but specifically... God's just pouring out his wrath and abandoning people where they can't think at the most basic level. They can't think. And um, that's what we're seeing today. So it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I'm not post-millennial in my eschatology. I don't think things are going to get better. I think they're going to get worse and they're going to get a lot worse. But the comfort for us as believers is that God is in control of all that. I can go to sleep at night and sleep well knowing that God is sovereign, He's in control. Uh, I'm not going to be the object of His wrath because, as I said in my sermon, God, uh, Christ has taken that wrath for me. Um, so does that help in that first question? Okay. Uh, the second question, a word of encouragement for elders and deacons. Yeah. I have a tremendous love for all of our faithful pastors out there. Um, you know, God in his sovereignty has somehow seen fit to give me something of a fairly sizable public platform, I suppose. Um, it's just happened. Uh, but I tell you what, it, it's, it's not going to be people like me that one day will be at the front of the line. It's going to be all of our faithful shepherds out there who are laboring in the word, rightly dividing God's word of truth, shepherding their flock, feeding them, uh, protecting them from the wolves. And these faithful men are out there. Uh, they, they are out there and they're all over the world because I've been all over the world and I've seen them. And they're not known to anyone. They're not being asked to speak at the big conferences. Or, you know, they don't have the big platforms. Nobody knows about them except their own little flocks. Uh, but it's those guys, you know, guys like Kyle, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, and I met another brother here as a pastor tonight. I don't see him. Maybe, I don't know if he's still here. Is he going home? But it's going to be those guys that will be at the front the front of the line one day. Their reward will be great. 
and I so appreciate them. And by the way, just so you know, the terms pastor, elder, and uh, shepherd, those terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. A pastor is a shepherd, a shepherd is an elder, an elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder. Those terms are all used interchangeably. Um, so a healthy church needs to be led by a plurality of uh, biblically qualified men who serve, as, who serve as elders. So typically you have one elder who is the primary preaching, teaching elder, uh, but you can have other elders who may not be in the pulpit every Sunday, but they have just as much authority as does the, the um, quote-unquote senior pastor, as people often think of it. But, uh, so elders, um, you see the wisdom of God in a biblical plurality of elders. Uh, that's how a healthy church needs to be run. And, so with the, and with the deacon, the deacons, by the way, deacons are servants. That's an office in the church. And deacons, are they basically have the exact same qualifications as does an elder, as, as elders do. Um, so I have great respect and love for our deacons as well. So uh, if, if you're an elder, you're a deacon, uh, maybe you're in a small church and you're struggling and you know, nobody knows about you and you feel alone, let me just tell you how much I love and appreciate you in what you're doing. It's a very, very, very important work. Very important work. Christ sees you. He sees you. And ultimately, we have an audience of one. We have an audience of one, and that's God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Again. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, thank you, Mr. Peters, uh, for your teachings sure. today and these days. Um, Mom, my question is... Um, what should Christians think about Muslims having dreams or visions about yeah. Jesus? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And uh, if I had, I have an entire uh, session in my seminar on how God does and does not speak to people. But so we've, let me turn to text. We hear this a lot, right? That Muslims are having dreams and visions of Jesus and Muslims are getting saved. There's a couple of real texts uh, that, that provide some real theological headwinds to that notion. Now, the first thing I would say before I get to the text, before, the first thing I would say, uh, do I believe that Muslims are having dreams about Jesus? Sure. I don't doubt that Muslims have dreams about Jesus. I don't think those dreams are from Jesus, but I don't, have, I, don't, I don't doubt they're having dreams about Jesus because Jesus is part of their religious fabric. They believe in Jesus. Now, they just don't believe in the right Jesus. They, they believe in a Jesus. They believe in a Jesus who is just a prophet. They don't believe that he was the son of God who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. They don't believe in the biblical Jesus. So uh, I'm not surprised when I hear that Muslims have dreams about Jesus. All of us have dreams about a lot of things. I've had a dream about Muhammad before, but I don't think that was Muhammad. 
you know, coming to me in my dreams. It's just, that's what I had a dream about. I also had a dream about four tornadoes chasing me around a Kentucky Fried Chicken. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah, does anybody have an interpretation? No, so, you know, it's, it's just a stupid dream. It's just, it, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. So, um, now, are Muslims having dreams from Jesus? No. The two main texts that would provide theological headwinds to this, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God long ago spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that in the Old Testament, God spoke in a lot of different ways. Spoke to Moses through a burning bush, up on the mountain through storm and thunder. He spoke to Elijah through the still small voice, which by the way was not an inner impression inside his head. It was an external audible voice. Uh, God made a donkey talk in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, God spoke in dreams and visions. God, he gave Jacob dreams. So there's, he spoke in a lot of different ways. But in these last days, says the writer of Hebrews, he has spoken in his son. Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, he has said in his son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect record of that here. This is how God speaks to us. Also, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Not without a dream, not without a vision, without a preacher. God's ordained means to his ordained end, the saving of his elect, comes through the scriptures as they are either read or as they are preached. That is how God saves people. How will they hear without a preacher? Um, God's not making exceptions to that just for the Muslims. And uh, so that is significant theological headwind to this whole, this whole notion of uh, God speaking through dreams and visions to Muslims. If I were Satan, if I were Satan, I could think of nothing better to throw cold water on the evangelism of Muslims than to get it in the heads of Christians that Jesus is showing up to Muslims in dreams and visions and they're coming to Christ. If I can get Christians to believe that, then Christians will say, I don't need to witness to a Muslim. You know, I, I don't need to do that. <laughs> Jesus has it covered. Jesus is showing up in dreams and visions to Muslims. So psh, I don't need to witness. I don't need to, I don't need to do any kind of mission work in Afghanistan or, you know, Iran or Syria or Turkey for that matter. I don't, I don't need to do that. Jesus has it covered. I could think of no better way than to get Christians not to witness to Muslims than to think, ah, Jesus has it covered. He's showing up in dreams and visions. I think it's a very, very dangerous belief and 
kind of urban legend thing out there that Jesus is showing up in dreams and visions to Muslims and they're getting saved. So I think it's a, I think it's a satanic deception. So, great question. Thank you. Good evening, sir. And my name is Tuppurainen, and you have spoken to my soul, and I'm very thankful for that. Praise God. Thank God. God. Yeah. So my question is: Is there free will, free will proof text uh, in the Christian doctrine? Singular P. Ferguson is saying that the only place where you are, when you where you have that free will proof text is. When you are, when he's Polish uh, talking about uh, administration or something like that, that is the only place in the Bible, if I remember correct from him, that there you can like find something about like free will, like man's free will. So, is there any kind of like free will proof text in Bible? Free will proof text. Uh, not rightly understood. There's not. Uh, I don't, there's not a free will proof text to, that like uh, disproves Calvinism or disproves the doctrine of election. No, there wouldn't be a, a, a free will proof text. Um, you know, I choose this day whom you will serve, I suppose some would say, but uh, um, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I, I guess some would, would appeal to that. But um, we salvation is a gift and it is a gift that must be received and it must be received by our will but it is god who makes us willing to receive it it's god who changes our will uh, apart from christ we're dead in trespasses and sins we're in bondage to sin um, as MacArthur said, the sinner is neither willing nor able to come to Christ on his own. So um, it's not that God brings us, drags us kicking and screaming to Christ, but he changes our will so that we will come to Christ, so that we will receive him, so that we will respond to the gospel. As I was, as I was saying, I think, yesterday, um, our, both of our, our faith and our repentance are both granted to us by God. The Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 11, 2 Timothy chapter 2 both speak of God granting repentance. Um, so they're gifts of God. But it is, it is the command to do something that we cannot and will not do on our own when we're lost in sins. It is the command to do that which we cannot do that enables God's people, His elect, to do those very things. So, um, yeah, I, there's not a proof text that's, that can be rightly interpreted, rightly understood, that would be a, um, you know, kind of like the silver bullet against Calvinism. Uh, good, e good, e good evening. <laughs> Good evening, Good evening uh, sir. Uh, just stammering with this. Um, my question for you uh, this night is, do you believe that there are such things as demon-possessed people today? And if you do, uh, how would you go about uh, confronting such people? 
Yes, another good question. Um, yes, I do. I do believe that there is demon possession today, absolutely. I, I do affirm demons, uh, that they are out there, and I don't know how many of them there are, but there's a lot of them, a third of the angels. So um, there are demons, and I believe Satan is real, and Satan is somewhere on this earth prowling about. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time like God can. Uh, so he's somewhere, who knows where. Uh, so yes, I do believe in demon possession. Now, I do not believe a Christian can be demon-possessed. That's an impossibility. But if you come across someone who is demon-possessed, don't, don't follow the advice of most of the modern spiritual warfare so-called experts. If you, if you come across someone that you suspect is demon-possessed, don't try to cast out the demon. You can't do it. That's an ability that only the apostles had. You can't do it. I can't do it. Don't try to bind Satan. You can't do that. I can't do that. And I've, you know, have you ever wondered all these people going around binding Satan? Who's the fellow who keeps letting him back out? You know, who, <laughs> maybe you ought to go find him first and, and bind him first because somebody sure keeps letting him out. So go bind that guy first and then try to bind Satan. So we don't have the ability to bind Satan or rebuke Satan or cast out demons or anything like that. So if you come across someone that you suspect is demon-possessed, and I've seen a few that I, in fact, I can name a couple of them right now, Todd Bentley and Kenneth Copeland. I believe genuinely they're actually demon-possessed. Uh, so don't try to cast out the demons. You can do two things. You can do two things. You can pray for them. You have access to God who actually can do those things. So you can pray for that person and you can share the gospel with that person. And if God saves that person through the gospel, then guess what gets evicted? The demon gets evicted. So those are the two most powerful things you can do. Pray for them and share the gospel. Don't try to cast out demons. Don't try to do things that only the apostles can do. And, and by the way, there should never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever be an occasion in which you and I talk to Satan. I've heard charismatics do this. They do it all the time. You know, Satan, I bind you. Satan, you're not welcome here. Satan this, Satan that. It's like... No, don't ever talk to Satan. There should never be an occasion in which you ever talk to Satan. Don't do that. It's bad. Michael the archangel, remember in the book of Jude? Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing accusation. But rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. So if Michael the archangel would not rebuke Satan, it's probably a pretty good idea that you and I not try to do it. And uh, real quick, before we go to the, if you can remember it, maybe write this down in your notes. There's two books that I would highly recommend to you dealing with our last couple of questions. One with the Muslim dreams. Both of the books are written by a guy named Jim Osman, O-S-M-A-N, Jim Osman. The first book is entitled, God Doesn't Whisper. God Doesn't Whisper.
And the whole book is about how God does and does not speak to us. And then the book uh, related to spiritual warfare, that is entitled uh, Truth or Territory. Truth or Territory. Subtitle, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. So uh, you can go to jimosman.com, J-I-M-O-S-M-A-N.com. And all of those books are there and a few others. In so, okay, excellent resource, jimosman.com. Okay. Yes, sir. My name is Axel, and I also want to thank you for these teachings here. They have been a blessing. Um, you've talked a lot about the um, Southern Baptist Convention and the direction it's going, wokeism. And yeah. So... Um, what, what's your opinion on the Gospel Coalition? Do you think it's going to the same direction, even slower, but still? Yes, yes um, it definitely is going that direction, the Gospel Coalition. Whether or not it's slower, that's probably up for debate. In some respects, it, it's probably just as fast. Um, yeah, the Gospel Coalition, it's, it's really sad to see what has become of the Gospel Coalition in the last handful of years. Uh, it used to be very sound, um, used to be a reliable source of good theology, good doctrine, but it has now become fully woke, uh, fully invested in the social justice movement. Uh, it's really sad to see. I, it's gotten so bad that I cannot, in good conscience, rec recommend the Gospel Coalition. Uh, now they've even gone so far as to they're, they're exegeting movies now and trying to find the Gospel in like, you know, movies like The Black Panther and, uh, you know, like Wakanda is a euphemism for heaven or something. I mean, it's just they're exegeting movies, which is just... It would almost be like a, a Babylon B kind of level of insanity, but, um, it, but it's real. So, yeah, it's, it's sad to see what's happened of uh, TGC, the Gospel Coalition. I can't recommend it. Sadly, I can't recommend it. My name is Joseph. Hey, Joseph. Like everyone has said, he has been... A blessing for you to be here. And my question is, what is the connection between God's sovereignty and man's praise effect? And the question is, like there is verses in Exodus 32, when the gold calf was made, and God was angry and wanted to exterminate the people of Israel. But then Moses prayed, and then he says, so the Lord relented from the harm he said he would do to his people. So mm -hmm. can we affect God's decision? That's the ultimate question. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Good questions tonight. Um, yeah, the relationship with <laughs> God's sovereignty and man's re responsibility. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do I believe in God's sovereignty or do I believe in man's responsibility? Yes. Yes. They're both true. The Bible affirms over and over and over, all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, the sovereignty of God. 
the Bible also speaks of and teaches very clearly the responsibility and accountability of man. It is incumbent upon, it is, a man is accountable to believe the gospel and to repent. And yet, God is sovereign over who does that. And yet, man is still accountable. These are two twin truths that are taught in Scripture, and they're both true. And we see them both. In fact, a lot of times we see them even in the same context, a lot of times even in the same breath even. In fact, let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 11. This is just one example, but one that comes to me. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 11, he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What things? The things of salvation. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So there's God's sovereignty. You have hidden these things. You've hidden them. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So very clearly, that is talking about the sovereignty of God, right? That's election undeniable. And then the very next breath, Jesus says, Come to me. Come. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man's responsibility. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, literally taught in the same breath. How do those things work out? None of us can fully wrap our minds around it. Our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, as well might a gnat, G-N-A-T, as well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean, so might a finite creature seek to comprehend the eternal God. Um, both of these things are true. And that's what we sometimes call an antinomy in Scripture. An antinomy is two truths that are taught in Scripture that seem to us to be contradictory, but in reality, in God's economy, they're side by side parallel. They're congruent. And this is one of those. Another example is like, um, who wrote the book of Romans? Did Paul write the book of Romans? Yes. Did God write the book of Romans? Yes. You see, um, now as far as prayer, I think your question specifically prayer, uh, if we believe in election and God has those that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be saved and they will be saved infallibly, uh, why do we pray for someone to be saved if it's already been determined from before the foundation of the world? Well, I could flip that question on its head and ask the same of the Arminian. Uh, Arminian, Mr. Arminian man, you who believe that it is up to our own free will to choose or not choose Christ. Why would you, Mr. Arminian, pray for anyone to be saved? I mean, if you don't think that God is going to put his thumb on the scale, so to speak, and it ju he just leaves it up to the person entirely, then why would you pray for someone to, to ever be saved? You see, Arminians have the same difficulty. Um, but the answer for us as Bible-believing Christians is this, is that God has not only ordained the end, he has also ordained the means to the end. And the ordained means to God's ordained end includes 
preaching, witnessing, evangelism, missions, and imploring people to come to Christ. You know, I'm a Calvinist. I, I'm a five-point Calvinist. Uh, but I think you've heard me over the last couple of days. I've implored people to come to Christ. I believe in that because that is God's ordained means to his ordained end. And so both of these things are true. And the most evangelistic people I know are, are Calvinists. Calvinism does not uh, throw cold water on evangelism. It actually energizes evangelism, rightly understood. So, um, so yes, I pray for people. I have people that I pray for every day to be saved. Every day. Do I know that it's already been determined from before the foundation of the world? Yeah. Do I also know that God has ordained it, that my prayers be the ordained means to his ordained end? Yep. So I'll pray. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Peters, for being here. I have thanked you a lot, so I got a question. So you have a, a ministry for uh, lifting up heresies. Yeah. And uh, we in Finland, we have done that too. And we have maybe, especially us young men, uh, thinking about what should we do about our heresies or maybe the liberal theology or, or stuff like that uh, on our own as a church, as a teachers, preachers. I would ask you for who that work is and on what level and uh, to whom we should do that. Should we do that for like Arminians? Because of course we have to do it for heresies, for example. Should we, okay, so should we warn people of the heresy of Arminianism? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. like is that a level of uh, doctrine that should be warned against? Yeah, okay. And who should do that work? Yeah, okay. Well, um, yes, that, that is uh, a work that we should do. Now, let me qualify it. Um, I am unapologetically, as I said, a, a Calvinist. I don't call myself a Calvinist because that's such a loaded term that most people don't even understand. But in this setting, I mean, for lack of a better word, just an easier term, am I a Calvinist? Yes, but... Um, I don't worship John Calvin, but at any rate, do I believe in the doctrine of election? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but as a Calvinist, I, I do not believe that all Arminians are lost. I don't think they're lost. I think there's a lot of saved Arminians. Now, I would say I don't think they rightly understand their own salvation. I don't think they rightly understand it, but I, I do believe that there are genuine Christians who are Arminians. Um, so I'm not going to anathematize someone who is an Arminian. Um, will I reason with them from the scriptures to try to better understand salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, I will say this. Carried out to its logical conclusion, I believe Arminianism does lead you to a work salvation because in the Arminian school of thought... Um, faith is something you conjure up in yourself. Repentance is something you do on your own. So when you carry it out to its logical conclusion, it does lead you, I believe, to a work salvation. 
but uh, a lot of Armenians just they don't they're not thinking clearly and they're not taking it out to its their own theology out to its logical conclusion but I wouldn't necessarily say that they're um, not saved if I was a pastor of a church would I have an Armenian preach for me no I, I wouldn't uh, very well may be my brother in Christ and, and, and we can have fellowship but uh, but uh, I would not have him preach because it is a very important issue. It is a very important issue. It has a lot of ripple effects in how you view pretty much every area of theology. So, um, yeah, in, enthusiastically defend the doctrines of grace. Absolutely do that. Um, but I would encourage people, don't, don't be a jerk about it. You know, um, speak the truth in love per Ephesians 4.15. So... Um, yeah, but it, it's a, is it a hill I'll die on? Yes, in the sense that I, I vigorously defend it. But, um, but I'm not going to say that all Armenians are, are lost. Does that help some? It does. Thank you. And I also uh, w at least wanted to ask that who is this doing for? Is it for every church member or like? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that part. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's for everyone who is regenerate and a true Christian. Yeah, uh, we're, all, we're all called to 1 Peter 3.15, give an answer, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So we're all called to be apologists in that sense. We're all called to be ready to give to defend not only what we believe, but why we believe it. So, yeah, it, it's for every, every Christian. Yeah. Thank you, Sir Justin, for the preachings. It's really a blessing. Uh, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thank um, you. I would like to lay down the premise before I get to the question. So um, my husband and I, we are missionaries in Lahti. It is one of the cities here in Finland. And in one of our evangelisms, I encountered a Pentecostal woman. And then I handed out the tract to her, and then she told me, no, I'm a, I'm a Pentecostal in Helsinki. And I said, okay, I understand, but this is the gospel. And then she said, mm, well, there's already a Pentecostal church here in Lahti. So you don't church plant here. You don't, you don't go here. And then I said, ma'am, I respect your opinion. And then, no, you respect the Bible. And then she walked away. And um, those are just one of our circumstances in church planting and in evangelism. And that led my husband and I to realize that these people who are in error are also a part of the mission field. Yes. And so what my husband did, he did many videos refuting theologically the different errors of charismatics and Pentecostal groups. But we did uh, receive um, some criticisms from brothers saying that that is not the uh, loving Christian way to do it. You don't rebuke them in YouTube, you don't rebuke them in those platforms. So my question is first, do you also consider these people as part of the mission field? And second, how do you address these brothers and sisters who, has, who have this kind of mindset that you don't refute those people theologically, publicly? That is not the Christian loving way. Thank yeah, you. another good question. We have really good questions tonight. So uh, do I view Pentecostals and Charismatics as the mission field? 
Yes, I, I do. But that is not to say that I believe that all charismatics are lost. I don't believe that. I believe there are some genuine uh, Christians who are charismatic. Now, I, I think they're profoundly wrong on a very important issue because where you come down on that issue, like election, it has a lot of ripple effects and a number of other issues as well, especially dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. So it's um, the, the debate about whether or not the apostolic gifts continue is not a primary gospel issue. It's not, we're, talk, no, we're not talking about whether you're saved or lost. But for the secondary issues, it's at the, in my book, it's at the top of the secondary issues. And it's, it's bumping the floor of the primary issues, but it's not up there yet. But it's very important because you cannot hold to the charismatic position and to the sufficiency of Scripture at the same time. They're mutually exclusive positions. Um, but do I view them as the mission field? Yes. But I also view uh, most churches, uh, most people in most churches as the mission field. I, I think there's, like for the Southern Baptist Convention, I can pick on the Southern Baptist Convention because I was raised SBC. I'm not SBC anymore, but I used to be. Um, theoretically, they're, they're not charismatic, theoretically. Um, they're cessationists. But I believe the vast majority of people going to Southern Baptist churches are lost. I believe they're unconverted. So um, within our own churches, there's a huge mission field. So uh, I do view them as, as the mission field. Uh, not necessarily just, just because of their charismatic position. Uh, but I will say that's a big red flag with me because most charismatics, most, are into word of faith theology. Not all of them. Like Wayne Grudem, who's written Systematic Theology, uh, Sam Storms. Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms would agree with all of us on a high view of God's sovereignty and, and salvation. They're absolutely right on that, but they are charismatic. Um, but unfortunately, and I fully expect to see those men in heaven one day, fully expect to. The problem, though, is though is the men like Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms and, and their followers, they represent a very tiny minority of the broader charismatic movement. The mainstream of the charismatic movement is Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, Paula White, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, um, those guys. Uh, and I tell people to prove that, to prove that that's the, the case, all you need to do is turn on Christian television because all Christian television is, is a function of supply and demand, basic economics. Whatever the demand is, that's what they will supply. And so when you turn on TBN, who do you see? You know, you don't see John MacArthur. You don't see expositors. You don't even see Wayne Grudem, for that matter, or Sam Storms. You see... Benny Hinge, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, all those guys, Joseph Prince. So, um, yeah, the vast majority of them are word faith. And, and uh, word faith is a different gospel. And I absolutely view word faith as the mission field. So, kind of a long answer. But did that kind of answer your... Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for the work y'all are doing, too. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah, my name is Shanti, and thank you for the preaching and encouragements. Um, my question is about uh, related with persecution. So you mentioned about how important it is to prepare our mind uh, to, to when we face persecution so that we are ready, because otherwise we would fail. Um, my question is how to do that, because um, often whenever I think about that, like uh, when I would be persecuted one day, yeah. for example, like if I don't deny Jesus, then I don't know, I would be mutilated, for example, or my eyes would be taken away, or whatever, <laughs> my tongue would cut. Then I just feel like I'm not ready for that. And um, I don't know how, so I don't know how should I make myself ready, but because um, in one way, of course, one way it would be try to like thinking that, okay, I would be ready, I would be ready. But wouldn't be, it also has, uh, has a risk that uh, it could be, couldn't be kind of like brain manipulation, like because everybody, like Muslim, for example, can commit jihadist act for the sake of their belief. So that could be in, in preparing, but then it might not be a good way of prepare, preparation. So if you could maybe give some advice of how to prepare. Yes, yes, okay, yeah, another good one. So, um, yes, persecution is coming as far as how we prepare, uh, prepare ourselves for that. This is going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but I believe it to be true. Uh, the two main things that we can do, fill our minds with the Word of God. Your Word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Read, study God's Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you, as Paul said to the Colossians. So study God's word, number one. And number two, pray. Pray that uh, God will give you strength when that time comes. Um, when I read like Fox's Book of Martyrs and I read all of the many martyrs that have given their lives for the gospel, and I'm, like Hugh Latimer, um, you know, John Wycliffe, and I mean so many of the reformers, gave their lives for the gospel. They were burned at the stake uh, by the Catholic Church. You know, and I've, I've often wondered if that were to ever threaten me, would I have that kind of courage? And I've often wondered if I would. And I have to believe that when it comes to something that severe, that acute, I have to believe that at that moment, for those of us who are truly Christian, even though sitting here right now, we might think, gosh, I just, I don't know if I could do that. I think when the time comes, I think that God will bestow a special measure of his grace to have the courage to do it when the time comes and pray for God to give you that if and when, or when and if, that time comes. Um, that is something I've prayed for myself because I, when I think of giving my life or having my head chopped off or you know, burned alive or something like that, it just, mm, I hope it doesn't happen. I, I don't want that. And right now it's like, I, gosh, I don't know if I would have the courage of of Hugh Latimer, of John Wycliffe. I don't know if I would have that courage, but I, I would imagine those men before the time came,
probably weren't sure if they would have the courage either. But I think when the time comes, God bestows a special measure of grace and courage to, to do that. So, does that help? Yeah, okay. And, and again, it is by that, a lot of times, as, we, as I quoted from John 21 last night, I think it was last night, when Jesus said to Peter, when you are old, someone, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and take you where you do not wish to go. And this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So, brothers and sisters, it may come to that for us one day. And we, we need to pray now that God will give us the courage to do that if that time comes. Uh, thank you for your teachings. Uh, this has been very edifying. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question that may be a little bit about details, but I'll ask it anyway. In Romans 9, Paul affirms that God hardens whom he hardens and uses the Pharaoh as an example. Uh-huh. When we read about the hardening in Exodus, we see that God does indeed harden the heart of Pharaoh. But why is it that sometimes it is written that Pharaoh hardened his heart and sometimes God does it? Why is there this distinction? Yeah, good question. And I I think the answer to that is kind of what we were talking about here a few minutes ago with the twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And you're exactly right. When you read, read through Exodus, sometimes God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there you see those ten, twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's accountability, responsibility before God. They're, they're both true. They're both true. So, yeah. Um, if anyone who dies in his or her sin will have no one to blame but himself or herself. Can't blame God. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, they're both true. So. Anyone else? Hi, my name is Becca, and thanks you. Thank you for your encouraging and sharing the word of God to us. I have a question about hyper-Calvinism. Uh-huh. Uh, do you think that it has affected us like uh, to be lazy, sharing the sharing the gospel to people or make us uh, not pleading, uh, pleading people enough to come to Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Good question. Uh, hyper-Calvinism. I'll say that a lot of people think, <laughs> a lot of people think that Calvinism in general is hyper-Calvinism. It's not. I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, a hyper-Calvinist would be someone who says that no matter what, X number of people are going to heaven, X number of people are going to hell, so therefore I don't have to witness, I don't have to evangelize, I don't have to do missions, I don't, some would even say I don't have to preach. Um, that's hyper-Calvinism, and honestly, if I've ever met a hyper-Calvinist, I'm not aware of it. I know there are some out there. I know they exist somewhere, but I've, I've not met any. But, uh, but anybody who would be a hyper-Calvinist, 
that, that, is taking, that is taking more liberties with the text than what the text actually provides. Because the same God who inspired Romans chapter 9 is the same God who gave us the Great Commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So, um, yeah, it, honestly, someone who would have no desire, no, no compunction to ever share the gospel, uh, and I know it, not everybody is an evangelist. I'm not saying everybody has to be, you know, a street preacher. But someone who has no burden, no nothing inside them that, that ever wants to share the gospel with anybody and they blame that on hyper-Calvinism, then I would say there's something wrong with the state of that person's heart. That person needs to examine himself to see if he's truly in the faith. Uh, because I, it, it should be a natural outflow of our lives as Christians to share the gospel with people. And so anybody who says, no, I, no I'm not, not going to share the gospel. I'm not going to do that. Well, I would say you probably need to examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. Because every true Christian should want to do that. So. Oh, and can I add one thing? And then we'll go to you. I'm sorry. One thing. Let me... This is an illustration I, I heard from someone that uh, kind of helped me in my early days of becoming, becoming a Calvinist when I, <laughs> when I asked John Calvin into my heart. I'm just kidding. I didn't know. <laughs> just kidding. Nobody spliced that on YouTube and, and take that out of context. But um, I used to have this understanding of Calvinism, of election, the doctrine of election that most people have, that... You have this whole throng of humanity, and they're trying to come to God. They're trying to get into heaven. And God is up in heaven, and he's got his hands out like this saying, no, 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 you can't come in. Okay, you there in the back in the red shirt, all right, you, I'll let you in. But you, nope, 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 yeah. You over there in the, in the green, yeah, okay, I'll let you in. But none of, no, 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 no. That, that's not the biblical picture of of Calvinism, of election. The biblical picture of election is that all of humanity is running to hell as fast as their little fallen feet will carry them because that's what they want. They love their sin, they hate the light, and so they're running to hell as fast as they can go. And God in His mercy is reaching out and saving some. God would be entirely just if he let every single one of us go to hell, if he let all of us go to hell, then he would have done none of us any wrong because that's what we deserve. He would be entirely just to do that. So how is God any less just when he chooses to save some? That's the biblical picture of election. Okay, yes, ma'am. Hi. Uh, hey. um, you know how grateful I am, so thank you again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry if this question or the answer is uh, obvious to everyone, but it isn't to me, so I'm asking. Uh, bear with me, I'm still young in my faith. So uh, this is the topic that you're uh, uh -huh. talking about just now, but did God call Judas because he knew Judas would betray him, or did God create Judas to betray him? 
Did God say that again? Did Jesus call Judas because he knew he would betray him, or did he create him to betray him? Yes. <laughs> yes, they're they're both true. They're they're both true. Um, it was Judas was responsible for his own treason against Christ. He was responsible for his own sin, and yet. Judas was clearly not one of God's elect. Um, now, maybe I misunderstood a little bit. I, I, I do not believe in double predestination. I don't believe that um, God has created X number of people um, and they were born basically morally neutral and then God shoves them over into hell. That's, that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that, as I just explained, is that everyone is already going to hell because that's what they want and God is saving some. But uh, God does have, according to Romans 9, He does have vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And um, God puts His attributes on display. Uh, he puts His holiness on display, uh, even in the destruction of the wicked. Uh, but at the same time, they are responsible. Judas is responsible. And Judas has no one to blame but himself for the reason that he's in hell. And so this, again, comes down to those two twin truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Our finite minds can't fully grasp that. But we believe them both to be true because Scripture teaches both are true. So... But know this, know this, no one, no one will, has ever or will ever go to hell who does not deserve it. No one will ever go to hell who does not deserve it. Um, what are your, uh, <clears throat> what are your, your thoughts on soli Deo Gloria uh, in our sanctification Yes, uh, solely, that's a good question. Solely Deo Gloria in our sanctification. So uh, I believe in monergism, that salvation is all of God. And yet uh, in our sanctification, excuse me, in our growth in Christ, uh, we, do have, we do have a role to play. Uh, we, our, our sanctification is not a passive endeavor. We just don't sit around and wait for God to sanctify us. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We are to put to death the deeds of the body, per Romans 8.13. Mortify the flesh. So we have these responsibilities in our sanctification. Uh, we have a role to play. But even in that, even in that, it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to do those things, who gives us the desire to do those things. So in a sense, even, even our sanctification is also monergistic, even though we have responsibilities. It's not a passive endeavor. If you, know, if you sit around all day long and you never read the Bible, you never study the Bible, you never listen to good preaching... Um, you don't 
mortify your own sinful desires. You don't take every thought captive. You don't do that. You don't love one another. You don't serve one another. You, you know, you forsake the assembling of yourselves. Well, then you're not going to, you're not going to grow in your sanctification. In fact, if you're doing all those things, I'd question whether or not you're truly saved in the first place. But um, we do have a role to play. But even that is energized and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay, I think this is the last question. One more? Thank you very much for your teaching. Uh, my question is how should I, what should I say to a very conservative, even reformed person who works for a Christian organization that seems to be very conservative and publishes very good things, but then somehow they translate Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen into oh. Finnish. And is it all about what should a real Christian who is in an post- authority position in a place like that do? What is their responsibility? So this organization is publishing some good stuff, but also... Mostly very good stuff. Conservative stuff and, and, you know, very good exegesis. And the person would himself be, you know, writing books against wokeism and BLM and these kinds of things. But then the organization has translated some really weird books (laughs) into Finnish. And I'm just thinking if it's just money. Yeah. Well, you have to believe that, um, I mean, my first assumption would be that the reason they're doing that is for money. Because if, if they're publishing good stuff, if they're translating good material, you would have to believe that they know that Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen and all this other stuff and Black Lives Matter and all, that's, that's bad. You would have to think, they would have to know that, I would think. Um, so if I'm working for this organization and I see that they're doing that, I would beg and plead them and say, brothers, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? Um, and, and tell them that the, we've got to stop. We've, we've got to stop. And reason with them from the scriptures and show them why this is bad. Show them why Joyce Meyer and all these word faith preachers are, are wolves and false teachers and you know, as, as people in the ministry, one of our most solemn duties is to uh, not only teach sound doctrine, but refute those who contradict it and protect the sheep from the wolves. But if you're publishing stuff from Joyce Meyer and all these others, you're not protecting them from the wolves. You're, you're giving them the wolves. You're inviting the wolves in. And so that would be a huge, huge issue for me. If I was working for that organization, I would beg them to repent and stop doing it and if they didn't and I had no say so over it um, I couldn't work there I, I could not my conscience would eat me alive I couldn't do it so John okay last time yes my name is Robin. Uh, uh, I have a question uh, about uh, the people, or you talked earlier about about uh, the election and so on. So, uh, 
So my question is, uh, did Jesus also uh, die on the cross for, for uh, people not uh, being elect? Or uh, did he all, uh, only shed his blood for the people who is uh, being saved? And uh, I hope I get a uh, uh, second question if, if necessary. If necessary, okay. All right. It's called a trap. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I believe in all five points. Um, and the, the one point that a lot of people seem to struggle with, and it seems to be the last domino to fall, if you will, is the L in TULIP, limited atonement. I do believe in a limited atonement. Uh, I believe in a particular redemption. I do not believe that Jesus shed his blood for all of the sins ever committed by everyone in the world. I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus shed his blood for the sins of his people. Um, if it was a universal atonement, if he paid for the sins of everyone in the entire world who's ever lived, lost and saved alike, then you've got people in hell right now who are, being, who are enduring the wrath of God, being punished for sins that Jesus supposedly has already paid for. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you would literally have, like think of the hours that Jesus was actually on the cross. You would have, for example, Goliath in the lake of fire being punished for the sins at that very moment that Jesus was also on the cross paying for those same sins. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. Jesus said, I came to lay down my life for the sheep, not for the goats, for the sheep. So particular redemption. Okay. Here comes a question. Uh, okay, it's because I'm not so familiar with uh, the five points. Oh, of, okay. Of okay. I'm so, sorry to assume that. Um, uh, but okay, so my follow-up question is then because uh, or how do you explain First uh, John 2, chapter 2 and verse 2? Because there it quite bluntly says that um, he's our redemption for our sins and not only ours, but also the whole, whole world. Yeah, for the whole world. So uh, the same question that's asked about First John 2 would also be asked uh, for like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, uh, and some other texts like that. So, um, for one thing, all in the Bible, or the world in the Bible, does not always mean every single person without exception. Uh, because if Jesus was the Savior of the whole world, everyone without exception, well, that leads you to universalism. So when Scripture speaks of, has those references like the whole world, whether it's 1 John 2 or John 3, 16, um, it is talking about people from every nation, every ethnic group in the world. So God has his sheep of every ethnicity, Caucasians, 
Africans, Asians, um, Aborigines, uh, you know, Indians. So God has his people from every ethnos in the Greek, every, every ethnicity in the world. He has his people scattered throughout the world. And so that's what that means. Not, not every single person who's ever lived in the world, but God's people from every ethnos, every nation, every ethnicity in the world without that distinction. Okay. Okay, Don, do you want to just finish in prayer for us for a minute? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been really good. This is what I hope for. Order and really good questions. Good Thank questions. you. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Very good questions. Yeah. Well done to yourself. <laughs> very good questions. Thank you. Uh, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we've had of questions and answers. We've heard, uh, we thank you for everything you've done for us. We do thank you for, for uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to have now, Lord, we, we'll be talking to one another. We pray that you help us to understand those questions and those answers which we have been given, Lord, will uh, uh, dwell in our hearts. We will be able to to understand them and process, Lord, uh, things will be clarified. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be able to enable um, our minds, our hearts to be open to the truth of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.